Well, good morning. Good morning. Will you uh, please take your Bible and meet me in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. I want to begin this morning with a few questions to consider quietly. Just to get us thinking. Who is the Holy Spirit, and what does He do? What is His role within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit? What role does He play in our world and in our lives? And what difference does He make? Think back to just this past week, just... Just this past week, just the last six or seven days, and, and ask yourself, how was the Spirit of God present in my life? And how did I respond to Him? These are very important questions because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is ongoing. Very personal, and it makes all the difference in the world, literally. You recall how Jesus gave final instruction to a small band of his followers just before he ascended back to heaven. And in chapter 1 of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, he said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Rather than cementing themselves in Jerusalem and waiting for the world to flood through their doors, they were to move out from Jerusalem and flood the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But key... To all of this was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised them the Spirit. They knew the Spirit was coming. They knew what to do once He came, but they were not to do it until He came. Instead, they were to wait, and wait they did. And as we considered last week, they waited obediently, they waited prayerfully, They waited purposefully by preparing for what was coming next. They waited in hope, truly believing that something better was just around the corner, which would be disclosed upon the arrival of the Spirit of the living God who enabled them, who would enable them in ways that forever changed their lives and turned the known world upside down. This morning, as we come to Acts chapter 2, to consider just the, four ver- the, the first four verses, we learn that expecting the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus is the first step toward being filled with the Spirit, just as He promised. Expecting the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus is the first step toward being filled with the Spirit, just as He promised. Let's read this together. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, they meaning the apostles, the disciples, remember there are about 120 of them, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Will you pray with me? Father, once again, we want to thank you for uh, just the opportunity we have this morning to gather in your name and even now to gather in your word. We thank you for this, really this great privilege and joy that is ours to learn your word because your word is an expression of your heart. And so we come this morning, God, really to learn your heart, to learn your truth, to learn what you're all about and to learn uh, the purpose for which we're created as well. We pray, Lord, that as we have our Bibles open, that you would open us to whatever it is you have for us today, that we'd be very receptive to your voice, very, um, very open to receiving that which you've set aside for us, and I would pray in particular that we would be open this morning to receiving and hearing from the Spirit of the living God. And so, Holy Spirit, even as we've sung today already, we just pray that you would come and minister to us, walk among us. Would you walk every aisle and down every row? Would you minister to every heart? Would you touch each person? Where there is doubt, would you, O God, bring faith? Where there is fear, would you, O God, bring courage? Where there is, um, where there is hurt and pain and worry, would you bring comfort and hope and healing? Would you speak and enable our hearing? that we would respond positively and obediently to the Word of God this morning. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we have the occasion of the Spirit's coming, the means by which He came, and the effect of His arrival on those who were present. We're told the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th and refers specifically to the Feast of Weeks, which was the second of Israel's annual harvest festivals that came 50 days after Passover. 
The purpose of this feast was to celebrate the harvest by offering thanks to the Lord. So then these early followers of Jesus were waiting expectantly for the Holy Spirit when the Spirit suddenly arrived on that great day of celebration and thankfulness. I don't think that's a coincidence. At a a time when people were celebrating an earthly harvest, the outpouring of the Spirit of God signaled an immeasurably greater harvest to come. It says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And here, two specific symbols are mentioned to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wind and fire. These are the means by which the Spirit came, and to understand what it means, we must consider what these images convey. The first symbol is that of wind, a mighty rushing wind. You know, in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus about our need to be spiritually born again, Jesus once likened the ministry of the Holy Spirit to a blowing wind that gives life to those on whom it blows. And the word translated wind here in verse 2 means breath and carries that same idea that the Spirit of God is the life-imparting breath of God. When God made Man, from the dust of the earth, remember, we're told how he breathed into man the breath of life, and thus man became a living creature. So when the Spirit of God arrived on that great day of Pentecost, it signaled the arrival of new life, new creation, new birth, if you will. In fact, later that same day, about 3,000 people were born anew. Their lifeless souls, dead in sin and self, were divinely resuscitated by the wind or breath of the Spirit of the living God. You see, this was a a mighty and rushing wind that could not be stopped. Mighty in the sense that the Spirit of God is God. And rushing in that the Holy Spirit was on the move. He had come from heaven to earth and the world has never been the same. The second image is fire. That tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, we're going to talk about tongues in the next sermon. Because I want to spend some time specifically discussing the gift of tongues and its implications today. But for today, the emphasis, we need to know this, the emphasis in this passage is not on tongues. It's that the tongues were set ablaze by the Holy Spirit. It's the fire that should grab our attention. Fire is light. You know, in our modern 
in the day of our modern convenience where we can simply flip a switch or grab a battery-powered flashlight or program our house lights to turn on and off automatically, we tend to forget that back in the day, before these conveniences, fire was a primary source of light. That the Holy Spirit appeared as fire is therefore instructive because it speaks to the spiritual illumination He brings. That's why Peter, when he stood to preach that day and thousands were saved, it wasn't because Peter was spectacular in his preaching. It was because the Spirit of God was illuminating the Word of God that Peter brought forth while he was also opening the spiritual spiritual eyes of those who were present. Fire is light. And fire is warmth. You know, we've all experienced those occasions when the warmth of a nearby fire brings almost unspeakable comfort and peace. There's just something about a good fire that's just so good. The warmth seems to reach down to our bones and settle our souls. And I'm here to say that that is like the effect of the Holy Spirit when He draws near and comes into your life. Occasionally, people will comment. Maybe you've heard this. Occasionally, people will comment about how something done in kindness warms their heart. You heard that expression? Now that expression, we're giving voice to the positive effect that an act of kindness has, particularly when that kindness is uh, unexpected and especially when it's undeserved. As James Montgomery Boyce has observed, the problem, you see, is not just that the world is in darkness and in need of light. It's also that the world is out in the cold, unwarmed, unloved, uncomforted, until God, after whom our hearts long and in whose image we're made, until God draws near to us. In Scripture, fire often represents God's presence. Think back to Moses and and his experience. Remember how God called him out from Midian and sent him back to Egypt to rescue the, the people of Israel. It was by the burning bush. And then later, as Moses led the people out from Egypt, we're told how the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And when they arrived at Mount Sinai to receive God's law, God called Moses up onto the mountain. He he met with Moses, spoke with Moses, told Moses what to do and say. And when Moses returned to give the people God's instruction, there was thunder and lightning while the mountain smoked with the presence of God. In the Old Testament, however, the fire of God's presence almost always produced fear. Because those who came in contact with it died. 
And yet when the believers are touched by the fire of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, they do not die. Instead, they come alive as never before. I love how Pastor J.D. Greer describes this contrast between the fire of God's presence in the Old Testament and then now in the New. He, He writes, The fire of God's presence was no longer fatal because Jesus has absorbed the full the fullness of God's wrath by dying on a cross in our place. And then he draws this parallel. I love this. Consider this. When the fire of God came down upon Mount Sinai in Acts 19, 3,000 Israelites died because they broke God's law. But when the fire of the Holy Spirit came down in Acts 2, 3,000 people came alive. Because Jesus had already died for our breaking of the law. He absorbed the fire of God's wrath so we could receive the fire of His life and power. And now we're sent out, not with the terrifying fire of God's judgment, but with the cleansing, healing fire of His redemption. I love that. You know, we sometimes talk about having a fire in our bellies or of being on fire for something or someone. That's what happened to these early followers of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit arrived on that great day of Pentecost, He lit a fire that set ablaze the men and women of God, a torch, if you will, that has been passed down from that day to our very own. The Holy Spirit had come to them just as Jesus promised, and then He filled them as never before. And now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Church, the sound of the Spirit's arrival, as heaven sent as it was, is not the point of this passage. The effects of the Spirit's arrival, like those of a mighty rushing wind, or a blazing fire is not the point of this passage. The tongues, the sudden ability to speak in different languages, as great a gift as that was, is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that those who waited in prayerful expectation for the Holy Spirit were undeniably filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled in this way? You know, you may recall from our first sermon in Acts three weeks ago, I said, as we walk through Acts, there are going to be moments where we're going to have to ask the question, is this prescriptive or descriptive? In other words, is this describing, descriptive, is this describing something that just happened to them in that place at that time? Or is this describing something that happened to them and continues to happen even to our very day. 
And I'm here to say that there are going to be times where we're going to say that's descriptive. There are going to be times where we say that's prescriptive. And there are going to be times like now we're going to say it's both. That obviously there was something very unique about the initial coming of the Holy Spirit on that great day of Pentecost. Obviously, there are things about that experience that are utterly unique to them. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is not one of those things. We are all urged. You've read this throughout the New Testament. We are all urged to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean? Simply put, it means being under the dominion and direction of the Spirit of God. Dominion is a matter of control, of recognizing who's in control of your life. It's a question of who sits in the driver's seat of your heart. Is it you? Are you steering your desires, your pursuits? Is it your circumstances? Things just happen to you and you're just taken along for the ride? Or is it God? Recognizing that God is sovereign over the affairs of life and has placed dignity and value upon your life and therefore has a specific purpose to guide your every day. My experience has been that until we address this issue of control, we will be forever dissatisfied and disjointed, wandering between this or that without ever really finding what we're created for. Take the Apostle Peter, for example. You know, before the Spirit, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter was all over the map spiritually. When we see Peter in the Gospels, it seems he's always bounding between true faith in God and his own brash behavior. One moment, he rightly confesses that Jesus is the Christ. The next, he denies ever knowing Christ. One moment, he draws his sword to defend Jesus. The next, he utterly deserts Jesus. But things begin to change in Peter's heart, for when we see him here in the book of Acts, we see an entirely different person. He finally began to understand what it meant to trust in Jesus. And once he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he went from being, being brash in his own strength to being bold in the strength of the Lord. You know, the key to overcoming your control issues and as my wife and family will tell you, I have many. Is to be in a relationship with God, characterized by faith in Christ, and radical abandonment 
to the Holy Spirit. Essentially, those people who are filled in this way have died to a self-centered, fiercely held desire for control to instead become alive to a radically God-centered dependence on and availability to Him. Do you see the difference? When the Spirit of God has reign in our lives, naturally we want to follow His direction. But to be born of the Spirit and to walk uh, by the Spirit, though related, are two very different things. We, we, we just need to understand this. The former, to be born of the Spirit, occurs instantaneously at the time of your conversion to Christ. But the latter occurs only as you live in a trust and obey relationship with Jesus. You know this. Within us rages a war between the sinful and spiritual natures. And the outcome of this war is already decided because Jesus has already won, and if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But living in the reality of this great triumph, what we might call victorious living, is determined by which nature we choose to follow. Being filled with the Spirit won't, uh, doesn't mean that we won't feel the pull of fleshly desires. It simply means that when those desires assert themselves, we don't fight them alone. You see, the victory, hear this, the victory when skirmishing with your sinful nature is not achieved by choking back the flesh, but by welcoming and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why elsewhere throughout the New Testament, uh, believers who already have the Spirit still are urged to walk by the Spirit. Did you realize that even Jesus, even Jesus, the Son of God, was dependent on the Spirit? He had enjoyed eternal relationship with the Spirit. We're told He was conceived by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit was with Him from, con from His conception and His birth. Yet even so, there was a noticeable change when He began His three-year public ministry. At His baptism, the Spirit descended upon Him. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, we're told, was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days where He overcame the temptation of the devil. We're told He returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit and entered the local synagogue. He took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled it and He found that place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And He made very clear that He was the long-awaited Messiah sent from the Father, anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of God's love and ability to rescue. Jesus Christ was dependent upon the Spirit. Church, I'm not sure if you're with me. Are you with me? <laughs> okay.
Jesus made very clear that he was the long-awaited Messiah sent from the Father, anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the good news of God's love and ability to save. And now his disciples were being anointed in a similar way for a similar purpose. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And again, let's not get sidetracked by the gift of tongues itself. The tongues was just a manifestation of the Spirit's powerful presence. The larger point is that they were filled with the Spirit for a purpose. Namely, for ministering to others in the name of Jesus to the glory of God. And that's what Acts, that's what the, that's what the rest of chapter 2 and really the entire book of Acts is all about. It's about the ministry of the Spirit of God through the witness of the people of God as they testified to the saving work of Jesus Christ and gave God all the glory. Now, most of us probably agree with this. But do we truly believe it? Do we truly believe that unless we are dependent upon the Spirit, unless we rely on Him, unless we are filled by Him, we will never achieve the purpose for which we've been made. In his book, Ministry in the Image of God, Stephen Siemens observes the following. He says, Most of us give, give lip service to this, but practically... We don't really believe it. We depend nominally on the Spirit, but primarily on ourselves. Our training, our skills, our personality, our past experiences and knowledge and sincere effort. And as a result, we accomplish or what we accomplish is limited to what we can do. And then he quotes Wesley Duell when he says, if you rely on training, you accomplish what training can do. If you rely on skills and hard work, you accomplish what skill and hard work can do. If you rely on committees, you accomplish what committees can do. But only when you rely on God will you accomplish what only God can do. So again, being filled with the Holy Spirit means being under His dominion, and his direction 
yielding to his control while following his lead, how then can we invite and welcome into our lives the filling of the Spirit of God? We can't pray. I want to offer three quick suggestions before closing. The question is, how can we invite and welcome the filling of the Spirit of God? I have three suggestions, but I love the one that was just called out there, to pray. That's what they were doing, right? They were praying. Jesus said the Spirit's going to come, and then they started praying for him. All right, mine, mine aren't as good as that, but let me give you three. <laughs> Number one, embrace the Lordship of Christ. Let me explain. In John chapter 7, Jesus proclaims the following. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so here we find one of the greatest invitations ever recorded. Jesus says plainly, to all who are spiritually thirsty. Are there any spiritually thirsty people among us this morning? Jesus says to all who are spiritually thirsty, He says, come and drink. And He equates drinking with believing, and believing, in this sense, is a way of expressing your desire for Jesus to rule and reign in your life. And then the passage reads, Now this, in other words, the rivers of living water that flow from the heart of the person who drinks deeply of Christ, this Jesus said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. So then, Jesus invites us to trust Him by entrusting ourselves to Him, and then He promises to those who do a heart from, from which will flow rivers of living water which refer to the Spirit of God. You see the connection? When we embrace the Lordship of Christ the life-giving waters of the Holy Spirit begin to fill and flow from our hearts. Therefore, embrace the Lordship of Christ. Number two, move, move with the Spirit. The picture, just picture it. I want you to picture it. Get a, get a mental image here. Of, of rivers of living water. Okay, get a picture of a mighty rushing wind. Get a picture of this fire that is just 
it's just blazing a trail. The picture, these pictures should clue us in on the fact that the Spirit of God is on the move. We're not talking about a gentle pond. We're talking about a rushing rivers. We're not talking about just a little breeze in the air. We're talking about a mighty wind. We must understand that at its core, a spirit-led ministry is a movement. A movement, not a program. And therefore, we must move from church as usual to church on the move. We must resist presuming upon the Spirit, either by putting limits on what He wants, or by confusing our wants with His. And hear this, we must recapture that movement mentality that has always marked true gospel ministry, and we must understand that a movement mentality requires just that, movement. So, as you're out and about this week, remember I began by asking, how did you see the Spirit of God involved in your life last week? Now, as you're out and about this week, be on the look for the moving of the Holy Spirit in your own life and in the lives of those around you. And move with Him as He leads. And then number three, but don't wait to feel led. Don't wait to feel led. I think I've, I think I've shared this example before, but it's so good, I just want to share it again. It's about John Wesley. Wesley was an Anglican who studied at Oxford and came from a refined, high church background. He loved, preferred, greatly preferred the high church experience. The liturgy, the hymns, the dress, the decorum, the dignity, propriety, uh, respectability of a very, 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 very formal church service. Loved it. The more formal, the better. He was very open and honest about this. But as the Great Awakening of the early 18th century began affecting Protestant Europe and British America, and especially the American colonies, Wesley sensed that God was moving in the unrefined circles of society among people who hardly had any church experience at all. Wesley, in other words, Wesley looked around him and looked in his church, loved his church. And then he looked around the world and he sensed God's doing something there more visibly, more visible and tangible than what I see here. And so he left his high church experience, his high church setting, to instead labor as an itinerant preacher, taking the gospel from one unsophisticated, uh, taking the gospel from one 
unsophisticated place to another. And hear this, after 33 years of this, he wrote in his journal that he still despised it. And not that he despised the Lord or the people, not at all, but he, it was this particular kind of ministry in those particular uncultured places he didn't like. But Wesley was committed to being led by the Spirit of God, even though he didn't always feel led. I think sometimes we confuse being led with feeling led. Assuming that if we don't feel led, we must not be led. As if our feelings have final say. But if we just stop and think about that for a moment, we see the foolishness of this, right? Because our feelings can be so deceptive, so back and forth, and such deterrence to what God desires. I mean, if the church historically depended on the come-and-go feelings of its members, it would have petered out long ago. But thankfully, those who went before us and paved the way did so, not because they necessarily felt led, but because they were led. Expecting the Holy Spirit. Expecting the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus is the first step toward being filled with the Spirit just as He promised. So embrace the Lordship of Christ. Move with the Spirit of Christ. And don't wait to feel led. Instead, simply be led. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for these moments. We need your help in every way in this regard. And so we just uh, ask for your help. We trust that you'll provide it. We, uh, we, wanna, we do. We want to embrace Jesus. We want to embrace his lordship. We want to move as you move. We want to respond positively to the movements uh, you're making in our own lives and hearts. And we want to respond positively to your movements and the lives of those around us. And, oh, God, would you help us? I I just know that in my own life, I need this. I sense that my brothers and sisters, we need this. God, would you just help us to not be so feelings-based and instead to be, to simply be led even when we don't necessarily feel like it. So come and have your way among us. Do your work in each of our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.